You're writing a story. You have your characters. You have your plot. But what about world building? insert appropriate measure of time here, my listening several. Today I had planned to talk about animal domestication and the dog. However, a friend pointed out to me that continuing on the general path of introductions to stuff might be a good idea and suggested government or economy instead. Both of those would be good topics, but I think before I cover either of them, I should look at something even more basic that I've neglected. Really, I should have covered this before I released the travel episode, but I was briefly worried about the generalness of the episode so far being too samey or something. Quite frankly, my whims can be fickle and changeable, and following them is sometimes a better plan than fighting them. In whatever case, you got an episode, and I'm sort of taking my friend's advice and sticking to something general and intro-y. But I'm not going to do a government or economy episode just yet. Today we're talking about culture. So, what about culture? What the heck even is it? What use is it? Who has it? How do they have it? If they even have it at all? Well, lots of people have tried in the past to define culture in lots of ways. Some ways have been more picky and narrow than others. Just think about how we have, quote, cultured people, unquote, or how going to a museum is, quote, experiencing culture, unquote, and things like that. Or how some of a more, mm, Victorian mindset might describe a group of people as having no culture. Those are technically ways of defining culture, true, but unless we're talking about methods of exclusion within societies, it's not a useful definition for our purposes. No, I have a better definition. Clifford Geertz, an anthropologist, actually defines culture in a way I quite like. He said, believing that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun, I take culture to be those webs. To explore that a little bit, Geert says culture is a web, and humans are both caught within that web and creating it. To explore the exploration a little bit more, people are caught up in significance, and they themselves create significance, which, according to Geertz, is culture. I think this is actually kind of fitting. Because when talking about culture, it's pretty much impossible to specifically nail down something and say, this is something that is universally recognizable as a cultural thing. The important part of Geertz's definition is the word significance. And I think when it comes to world building for writing, it's doubly important. In writing, whether it's for a fantasy book, a sci-fi movie, or a D&D podcast, there are parts of your world building that will be significant. The parts that really impact the story. Your job as a writer, is to determine which parts will make those impacts. My job as a world-buildingologist professor is to explain to you that there are so many different parts of culture that are actually important. But first, let me finish my explanation of significance. Now, I just explained the significance in writing. Next, I'm going to explain the significance within culture. Geertz probably uses the word significance because A, he's an academic type, and I'm pretty sure academic peer-reviewed smarty pants publications pay by the syllable, and B, because when discussing culture, the proof is not in the pudding, but in the, uh, significance. What has meaning in the culture? What is important in the culture? What has value? What is important? What is significant? 
Something that might be meaningless in one culture could be something everybody pays attention to in another. But in the end, the significance of culture comes and catches those within it. And while the culture creates webs around a person, that person simultaneously changes and makes their own meanings within these webs. Well, that's great, you might say to me, but can you actually get talking about culture now? And to that I say, okay, fine. Fancy Pants' definitions and discussion of culture aside, it comes down to the fact that culture surrounds both your characters and you, the writer. In a very broad sense, culture does affect what we and our characters would eat, how we dress, what language we speak, how we do our hair, what values we have, and even how we see our jobs. Like Geertz and I said above, even while culture surrounds us, we can also change it. So neither writers nor characters are always going to be the complete perfect examples of absolute average members of whatever culture they inhabit. Nobody works like that. But it is important to understand that culture deeply, deeply affects us and our characters. Differences in speech or even gesture can be... Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. My social sciences nerd is showing. Back on topic. I've gone into what the definition of culture is, but the question you as a writer have to ask yourself is what aspects of the world are important. I know this is an episode all about culture and what culture is and how there are so many aspects of culture that are connected to each other, but we all have to face the reality of limits. There are limits of time and there are limits of our chosen mediums. I'm going to be using books as an example here, and we're all going to imagine that we're writing one even though, you know, that's not the case. So, even though books can get pretty in-depth, especially compared to movies, and they can go into some pretty intense detail, even they have their limits. If your goal is to actually tell a story and not to write an ethnography on your world, you can't take the time to give lessons on every aspect of the world you've built. There are many chances to get into some really good details, and you should, but even J.R.R. Tolkien, Mr. I made up three languages and five cultures, never talked about how hobbits in the Shire went about their funerals because they weren't relevant to the story. When writing a book, being able to integrate your world building into the story will be important, arguably more important than the second factor, which is much less fancy fact that there just won't be the time. There won't be the time for you to write all of it out and there won't be the time for your readers to read all of it. There's just so much within culture that trying to map out every aspect of it is impossible. Actual human people in real life do this kind of thing. They try to figure out all the aspects of one current culture and they spend years doing it. They spend years just looking at just one subsection, one subculture. The point is, don't worry about getting every single detail down into your story. So, even though you don't have to get every detail into your story, what details do you need? Well, the first advice I'm going to give you is the cop-out answer and tell you, it depends. Don't throw eggs at your podcast listening devices. It's true. I just gave Tolkien a hard time because we don't know about Hobbit funerals, but really, we don't need to know them to move the story forward. Hobbit funerals are a neat piece of trivia that Tolkien probably had in his head, but never saw fit to include. However, we do know about the funerals of Rohan nobility because that was important within the story, within the time. And that's really the important phrase, important to the story. There are probably going to be two different levels to this. Phase one, before you write, and phase two, while you're writing. 
In phase one, you're planning everything up to and including your story. During this stage, I would encourage you to read everything you can get your hands on, listen to historical podcasts, cultural podcasts, whatever, and watch documentaries and everything. You never know what will set off a spark and give you that great idea, and you never know what little tidbit will be important later. In phase one, your job is to be a sponge. Soak up all the information you possibly can, unless that's kind of your default state, in which case, good on you and keep going. Phase two, you still need to keep getting information, but in a more discerning way. Not so much of the higgledy-piggledy, all-over, reckless info-seeking. Theoretically, you've started writing and you have a goal in mind. Use that goal to frame your research and help you write. And remember, rewriting is a totally doable thing here. If you create something you need to redo, then redo it. On a more concrete note, I have on the What About World Building Tumblr blog a whole series of posts with lists of important world building questions. Questions like, what happens to the trash? Or ill people? Or who makes the food? Things like that that are very important to a culture's survival. These things may or may not make it into the final draft, but you never know what's going to pop up. Don't automatically write these almost humdrum questions off, especially if you're writing about a big city. Big cities can't, for example, create their own food for the most part. The population density is usually too great for the immediate surrounding area to provide all the crops it takes. I say usually because there might be some kind of outstanding circumstances that allow for the immediate area around a big city to be unusually fertile cropland, but food imports are a way of life for big cities and have been for a very long time. It's why, for example, sieges would be successful. The attacking army generally couldn't overpower the city's defenses, but they could starve the city or castle or whatnot. They could starve them out. While it seems like a lot of that was specifically for making up worlds out of whole cloth, we can also look at augmenting a world through these lenses as well. Many times people will create a futuristic world or a world with magic and fail to take into account how things would change or stay the same within a culture. It's absolutely something that needs looking at. If, say, you look at a futuristic setting where people make video calls instead of merely using audio phone calls, what happens to the way people communicate? People make and receive calls from very weird places. Will setting and grooming become more important or less? If, say, calling people at the gym when they're sweaty becomes normal, does that mean looks in general become less of an invested interest? Or does that mean, if you're always liable to have an important call, you have to be able to look professional 24-7? How about privacy? Would this huge change in communication technologies mean that visual privacy becomes as big of an issue as audio privacy? Does the increase in audiovisual calls mean that there are specially decorated segments in and around buildings, offices, tourist spots, etc., where people can make their calls? We already have a habit, generally, of seeking privacy when we're on the phone. How would that impact the way people act if there were automatically a visual component. It's also important to understand that culture is not a monolith. Going back to the example of the vid calls and grooming, it's very, very likely that both possibilities I outlined would happen within the same culture, just on different segments. Odds are that young people, especially young men and boys, would embrace and accept the idea of just looking however they look when calling people, whereas older people would likely feel that taking a vid call while looking sloppy might be disrespectful. That idea, that concept of disrespect, might likely be spread through various social hierarchies, meaning that those with lower social standing, you know, marginalized people, would feel pressured to always look perfect in case they got called. Always. 
and they might get flack for it if they answered a call while looking messy, or even just normal. There are so many ways that culture might facet, so many different little folds, different strands of the web. The first and most obvious one being gender. Another big one that is both more and less obvious is class. I say more and less obvious because while there is a general awareness of, quote, rich and poor, unquote, there is a lot of misunderstanding, or even a real lack of understanding of the differences there. People who have never lived check to check and grew up with parents who never lived check to check might find it hard to grasp the realities of actually living paycheck to paycheck. Meanwhile, people who've never had incomes of six figures might not realize a few things themselves. Though, let's be honest, there are more shows about upper-class people, so we all kind of have an idea. Another facet is religion. There can be many different religions within one culture. Or, if you're working with a polytheistic culture, maybe there's differences in people who have a pref for one specific deity within the pantheon. Jobs also create differences within culture. Different hours, different practices, different risks, and different strange traditions, like annual prank wars, or how sulky racers in England claim it was invented by the middle-class people who drove carts professionally because they made deliveries of milk or meat or something. Those are just a few examples of different potential subcultures within your overarching culture. It's certainly not an exhaustive list. I didn't even really get into the whys and hows of these sort of subcultures. But the point is still that even within a single culture, there are different groups, and these different groups will have their own ways of doing things. Depending on how intense they are about doing these own things of theirs, they could end up being classified as a subculture. Last thing to talk about might seem pretty obvious, but humor me, a poor social sciences student, while I talk about how culture is transmitted because once we get past some of the big obvious things, it actually gets quite interesting. One of the big obvious Things being the way families transmit culture. Your parents or guardians tell you all these things about where you live, how you're living, why you're living the way you're living, and so on, and that kind of knowledge gets passed on through the generations. Like I said, obvious. Parents, even in modern times, teach us things like table manners, language, recreation, and sometimes religion as well. They're obvious teachers. But there are subtle things we pick up from our parents that we might not notice till we're older. In addition to parents and families as transmitters of culture, we have things like schools, churches, entertainment media, even laws as ways culture gets passed on. Laws and media, especially today, are very important aspects regarding how culture gets passed along or doesn't. One of the most important reasons to know about how a culture gets passed along is to be able to understand how a culture dies. Over the centuries in our world, there have been many attempts to destroy cultures. Not necessarily specifically to kill the people, but to destroy the culture, both consciously and unconsciously. Most obvious have been things like the schools that white settlers set up in Canada, the United States of America, and Australia for the people whose land they were stealing in a frightfully effective bid to destroy numerous cultures. Other attempts at stamping out culture have been done by the English in places like Ireland, where the speaking of Irish was illegal and anyone caught doing so could have been punished. This tactic, specifically the outlawing of language, was used again centuries later in Poland by Russia in the 1800s. These were ostensibly legal measures that were put in place to destroy language, if not the culture. Neither attempts succeeded, thankfully, but their impacts remain today. But that's a topic for some other day. The point I was making is that cultures spread along certain lines, and the disruption of these lines can lead to a weakening or death of these cultures. I also mentioned, in addition to laws, how media was a big part of spreading culture today. 
And it is. When looking at things, even from a historical viewpoint, before technology like TV and radio, mass media of all kinds was a very powerful mover and shaker. Kings would hire artists and poets alike to help their public image. Novels could move people to war, and so on. It's all very dramatic, and it hasn't stopped being dramatic. No matter what level of technology your world has, it will have media, even if it's just an oral tradition of stories. And that media will shape the culture as it is produced and shaped from the culture. It's all very endless cycle, and it's easy to get lost in the kind of chicken and egg logic. But the point is, media is important both in celebrating and passing on culture and cultural ideals. Think about how you learned the general date routine. Did your parents or teachers ever sit you down and say, dates usually start at so-and-so time and dinner is usually involved and the guy usually pays? No! Well, at least mine never did. I, like I suspect many of you, learned the standard date formula from watching TV or reading books or other media. The lesson becomes a part of us and part of the wider culture. As I said above, not all of these aspects of culture will make it into your stories, but they are important things to at least think about while world building. That episode got a bit rambly, but when it comes to culture, there are so many different rabbit holes to fall down. I think I got a little distracted. We may do another episode about culture, maybe focusing on subcultures or about cultural transmission or about the base philosophy within cultures. Those episodes should be more focused. But for now, our time is up, my listening several. Though for next time, if you do want me to switch it up, or if you've got a specific topic you want me to talk about, tell me. You can find me at the Twitter at WAWorldBuilding, or on Tumblr at whataboutworldbuilding.tumblr.com. You can also send your questions, comments, vague platitudes, philosophical ideas, all through email at whataboutworldbuilding at yahoo.com. I hope to hear from you. Thank you, and bye!